Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us at the intersection of policy, politics, and demographics. Today's topic, healthcare wars. Perhaps greater than any other sector of the American economy is the business battle that is playing out through government in the area of healthcare, which, as many of you, our listeners, know, accounts for something like 20% of the American economy. And it is certainly true that in other sectors, whether it's defense or financial services, there are significant fractures that represent conflicts between various parts of those industries, internal conflicts within those sectors. We would argue that in healthcare, there are the greatest, most intense, most consequential civil wars playing out. And so we say wars because it's not one battle, it's not two factions playing out against each other, but it is multiple factions, often shifting factions, positioning, using government to gain a business advantage. And changes in that civil war portend very serious consequences, not only for healthcare, but for the way businesses approach and engage government and for the American economy more broadly. Joining me today, as always, are my colleagues, Johnny Pfluger, our chief strategist. Great to be here, Jonathan. And Jeremy Furchgott, director. Thank you. Good to be here. So to begin and to offer the listener an introduction I would like to turn to you, Jeremy, and to just help the audience understand what do we mean by healthcare wars? Who are the participants? What are the contours? How should our listener understand this conflict that is playing out? And before you do that, I want to make it clear that our firm has done work on the healthcare sector for more than a decade. And principally, we have advised health insurance companies, PBMs, medical device companies, some major retailers who are very involved in healthcare. And so we have experience with those entities. But often those entities are battling against other entities, some of which you're going to describe. So we have a particular perspective. Hopefully, we will approach this as objectively as we possibly can, but I want to make sure that we put up front our experience and where our interests may lie. But with that disclaimer, let me hand it to you, Jeremy, for you to describe what we mean by healthcare wars. Well, the healthcare wars are not a left versus right type of war. They're wars between different types of business models. There are different types of companies within the healthcare sector that are battling one another. For example, hospitals versus insurers versus pharma versus doctors versus pharmacists versus wholesalers. One could go on and on. Those are some of the major participants in the battles. The battles really reflect different concepts of what health is and different theories of how to achieve health. And different companies have different answers to the following question, what is health and how do you provide health? A hospital would say, Health is the patient leaves the building healthier than they came in the building. The doctor would say, we have a strong patient-doctor relationship. The insurer would say, we protect the patient against financial disruption and maintain the stability of the patient's medical journey. A pharmaceutical manufacturer would say that it discovers new innovations which lead to health. A pharmacist delivers those innovations a wholesaler also delivers those innovations. There are all these different types of healthcare companies that support health in different ways, and their business models come into conflict with one another, and that leads to the healthcare wars that we see right now. So, Jeremy, what you've described is really, and we could get into more categories, but essentially there are these six, we'll call them powers— Pharmaceutical manufacturers, wholesalers, distributors, insurers, and PBMs, hospitals, and then providers and doctors. And they are all 
fighting, competing for a share of healthcare spend. And although healthcare spending is rising along with more and more challenged population health, there's more and more political pressure to constrain that spending and to limit profits. And so that pressure makes the competition within the industry between and among these private parties more and more intense. And so those private parties, those, those components of the private sector healthcare system are investing more and more in defending their market share and also trying to acquire other people's market share. And so that's the war that's playing out. And the intensity, I think we would argue, has reached the point akin to World War I before the entry of the United States, that there now is this unending battle, this intractable conflict. And recently there's been some changes that we're going to talk about, and we explored these changes in a study we did recently, which can be available if you want to contact the firm. We're happy to share it. But we wanted to look for what are these shifts in what has been a multi-decade conflict. When I mention shift and I talk about where we've been the past 30, 40 years, I just want to take a second and describe that a little bit. I remember back when I was on Capitol Hill in the, I hate to admit it, 1990s, it was all about controlling costs. This was the era of the deficit hawks, Ross Perot, green eye shades, and Hillary Care was about access, but it was also about how do you bend the curve? How do you control these rising healthcare costs? And that really was the focus of the debate, access with cost, with cost being, I think, a very important feature. Then in the 2000s, with the rise of e-commerce and disintermediation, there was the idea of eliminating the middleman. And again, I think very much along with the trend of e-commerce, there was a prioritization of how do you get parties out of the system who might be layering costs that ultimately end up with the consumer. So that was the big fad, I would say, in the 2000s and the early teens. And then more recently, in the 2020s, we have this deep distrust of corporations, especially in healthcare, as the consequence, I would argue, of three things. One, the opioid scandal, two, COVID-19, and three, cultural issues, most prominently, the transgender issue. And those three things along with some other stuff, have combined together to make the debate, I would argue, less about controlling healthcare costs and more about constraining corporate power or even protecting the consumer from corporate malfeasance. So, Jeremy, I want to go to you first. I want you to comment on that encapsulation where you agree or disagree. And then, Johnny, wherever our consensus may lie, who are the winners and losers as a result of that shift to this new, less trusting environment? Jonathan, I agree with those three categories, the spending, the deficit hawk category to which I might add the deregulation push, which is closely related to it, and then the disintermediation and the anti-corporate. I would modify your framework a little bit by saying that those three schools of thought still coexist on the right. And we're in this interesting era on the right where there are different ways of looking at healthcare that are in competition with one another. There still are people who are focused on deregulation and cutting costs. There are people who are focused on simplicity and disintermediation and connecting the patient directly with the technologist or the doctor. And then there are those who are focused on corporate malfeasance and the lack of trust in corporations. And one of the questions that we've been trying to explore is which of these political frameworks for looking at healthcare is likely to become more popular, certainly on the right, in the coming years, in the coming decade, and what we can expect for the future of right-of-center views on healthcare policy. 
Based on our study of the new right, I think it's clear that the pharmaceutical industry faces the most risk. If you go to our website and request a study and read it, you'll see that every bucket you mention faces some degree of risk. But I think it's clear from our conversations with new right opinion leaders, sometimes called national conservative, sometimes populist, sometimes industrialist, et cetera, et cetera, the force within healthcare that is most suspect is the pharmaceutical industry. And that is aesthetically inconsistent with the overwhelming advertising, marketing power of that industry. If you just watched cable TV in the 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock hour, you would think that the pharmaceutical industry is in the strong horse position. But our analysis reflects a deterioration. And you laid out some of those factors, I think. Another factor is that the big drug companies are the corporations perhaps most susceptible to the critique of neoliberalism that we've talked about on earlier episodes, which is to say they have engaged most heavily in offshoring, in inversions, in focusing on intellectual property rather than labor, moving the intellectual property into low-tax jurisdictions, and leading to what people would criticize as base erosion here in the United States. And I think, although the precise terminology does not match one-to-one -one what the new right told us over the course of our discussions, I think that critique really resonates. It's similar to the critique that a lot of people have had vis-a-vis -vis the big tech companies related to tax avoidance. And you saw the emergence of this sentiment very early in the Trump presidency and during President Trump's first news conference as president, he signaled this inclination against pharmaceutical manufacturers. The other thing we have to do is create new bidding procedures for the drug industry because uh, they're getting away with murder, uh, pharma. Pharma has a lot of lobbies, a lot of lobbyists, and a lot of power. And there's very little bidding on drugs. We're the largest buyer of drugs in the world, and yet we don't bid properly. And we're going to start bidding. I'm going to save billions of dollars over a period of time. And you could argue that the drug negotiation reforms that have emerged and been implemented under President Biden really originated from President Trump and the Trump administration, that the trajectory that President Trump sent healthcare policy on is continuing to play out under President Biden. So there's a connection there, perhaps. Johnny, I want you, as our resident expert on the Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement, to talk about the relationship or linkages between and among the Master Settlement Agreement of the late 90s, the opioid crisis of the last decade plus, and COVID-19. How did that series of events affect the current debate, especially on the right? The Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement, the tobacco wars of the 1990s, I think, inculcated among people in the policy community the idea that large companies were deceptive and intentionally addicted consumers to their products and hid the facts related to those addictions. And I think a lot of people on the right looked at the Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement and saw it initially as an instance of the left defanging one of the most important funding sources for right-of-center causes. 
by which they meant the tobacco companies, that the tobacco companies like oil and gas companies were mainstays of the Republican corporate coalition. I think that was the initial critique, some shock, amazement at what the trial lawyers and Democratic attorney generals were able to pull off. But over time, I think what's emerged is an affinity for this paradigm of big companies addicting consumers and leading to reduced population health. And I think we see in our study, especially in the area of food and nutrition, a similar notion that big companies are engaged in a project that is enriching the executives of those companies, but leading to worse health for American consumers. So, Johnny, I want to focus on this point that you're making because I believe it's critically important. It's originally your point, so I'm repeating something I've heard from you many times over the years, but that even though at the time, as you say, the tobacco master settlement agreement was seen as a victory by the left and viewed in ideological terms, it amounted to the admission by some of the leading, most prominent corporate brands in the world that they had engaged in a deliberate campaign to addict and harm Americans. And although at the time... Many Republicans, folks on the right, rejected the method by which that confession was extracted. It seeped into elite culture. It seeped into some sort of consciousness about how companies conduct themselves. So when the opioid scandal emerged, the preconditions had been set for accepting or confirming the allegations made and that were confirmed or admitted to in the late 90s. So the connection between the Master Settlement Agreement and the opioid crisis, one set up the next and I think had very profound consequences. And I would say, as an aside, industries, companies should be very, very careful when they accept the criticism of their industry as inherently evil or toxic or corrosive, because that will have consequences far beyond the immediate scenario. And of course, I'm thinking about the oil and gas industry. It's a very big thing to say that the product you produce is going to fundamentally harm human civilization. Once you accept that premise, it's pretty much irreversible. One other thing we should mention, which we've talked about on previous podcasts and which was the subject of one of our earliest political risk briefs, is the absolute horrific collapse in population health, to use a phrase we've used a couple times on this episode, that people really began to notice after the financial crisis and really crystallized in a lot of people's minds in 2015 when Angus Deaton and Ann Case wrote their famous paper. A lot of people on the right looked at the statistics on morbidity and mortality among white working class, clearly Republican voters, and said, holy cow, we have the best pharmaceuticals in the world. We have the best medical devices in the world. We've done many of the things that the pro-innovation libertarian right has asked us to do. We've allowed all sorts of financialization in healthcare, and it doesn't account for much because people are drinking themselves to death, drugging themselves to death, committing suicide, dying of, of heart attacks. Where is all of this great innovation showing up to actually produce stronger population health. Life expectancy is going down. And I think, obviously, that is tied in with the opioid epidemic, but that's kind of the framework or the context in which a lot of the folks we spoke to 
are approaching this question of, of health care. So we've mentioned a little bit here this fissure, this divide between legacy conservatism, the old right, as some would say, and as you've mentioned, Johnny, the new right as the broad term. And Jeremy, I'd like you to sort of walk the listener through what are the biggest divides between conservatism as it existed largely pre-2016 and the new right that has emerged then in years since? I think that there are all sorts of interesting ideological or philosophical differences. For example, the new right is much less concerned about federal spending, much less concerned about deregulation, much less concerned about maintaining a pure free market. I think that when looking at health care in particular, there is an interesting phenomenon, which is that the new right, in addition to having different views about political economy, also tends to have different views about health and what health is. Many traditional Republicans, free market conservatives, tended to have generally favorable views of pharmaceutical manufacturers as exemplars of American innovation and the power of the American legal system and free markets to unleash technological innovation. They tended to have favorable views of doctors as well as hardworking medical professionals. Many on the new right are very skeptical of all sorts of different forms of medical expertise. So, Jeremy, you're describing this instinct against medical experts, medical research, technology interventions, as opposed to more natural individual approaches? As opposed to three different pillars of health, as I think that many on the new right see it. One pillar is what I would describe as the physical or biological pillar, and that is how much you exercise your day-to-day behaviors and what you eat. The second is social. Do you have a family? Are you married? Are you part of a community? This idea that loneliness can create all kinds of medical problems. And then the third pillar has to do with technology. There's a very strong anti-tech sentiment on the new right, a lot of concern about screen addiction, a lot of concern about social media, especially among children. So those three components, I think, are the pillars of the new right. And when COVID emerged, and without descending into a debate over vaccines, there was some lack of consistency in what was promised and was occurred, where everyone thinks of the vaccine ultimately and its efficacy. That really supercharged this inclination to be against these medication interventions. That's the devil's bargain that the companies behind the vaccines made, which is to say they received a huge amount of revenue and stock boosts from Operation Warp Speed and you know similar arrangements around the world. But it also brought forth skepticism, the likes of which they did not see previously. In defense, however, of the pharmaceutical manufacturing industry, there's perhaps a reason why American culture is so well-suited to the consumption of pharmaceutical products. Americans like efficient solutions. And you see parents, for example, who like the idea of a solution to their child not sleeping well at night. Well, there's a pill for that. There are quick, relatively accessible pharmaceutical technological solutions to a lot of day-to-day problems that people face. And I think there's something about American culture which leads Americans to want to access these solutions. So, Jeremy, you're exactly right. And what you describe really also illuminates a key aspect of the new right, which is skepticism of the market. Because there's demand for something, the new right doesn't accept that there should be a supply 
many of the consumer brands we know today, whether the big cereals or Coca-Cola emerged out of this 19th century quasi-religious drugstore, patent medicine, tonic in a bottle culture. So there's something I think that the new right has picked up upon in terms of the relationship between U.S. consumer culture and medical indications. And at the same time, there's something that they have not picked up upon in terms of how deeply ingrained and probably inherent these desires are. And populists confront a real dilemma, which is that at the same time that the populist movements have great faith in the common man, the average citizen, as we see here today, the average citizen is making a lot of bad health decisions. And so that is a tension within the new right, that on one hand, we should get away from all this professional expertise and all this medication, and people should be left to make their own decisions and pursue more natural cures or more natural uh, approaches. But yet, by and large, people are not doing that. And so, again, it's a tough problem within the new right as the new right struggles to develop a healthcare agenda. And one of the paradoxes or contradictions is that in the 1950s, in the era when the American economy was booming and there was a lot of industrial productivity and in the new right's conception, as we've talked about on many podcasts, with a high school education, you could get a good-paying job in a Ford plant and support your family. Diet was not what the new right would like it to be. There was a tremendous amount of consumption of the things that the folks on the new right with whom we spoke would label poisons or just short of poisons. There was a lot of processed food being consumed in the 1950s. So there are these kind of contradictions that have not yet been worked out because this is a relatively young movement at its outset. But I would say likely the typical new right response to the point you're making, John, and the point I made would be that corporations are engineering products that addict people that prove so enticing that the market can't be relied upon to allow people to make those decisions. So I think that would be, I think the the positioning of corporations in this role in line with the tobacco mass settlement agreement and other things, or the opioid crisis, they have a great skepticism of how corporations engage consumers. I think it's worth exploring how the topic of antitrust, which we've discussed on previous podcasts, and we've discussed it because it is an increasingly prominent feature of the public policy debate, how antitrust is playing out within the healthcare conversation. So in thinking about antitrust, Johnny, how is this playing out with hospitals, especially in markets where there's been a lot of consolidation? And are people thinking about not-for-profit hospitals the way they once did? There's tremendous scrutiny of hospital consolidation. In our study, we cite even the Libertarian Cato Institute as being concerned about hospital consolidation. That's not something you just see on the new right. That's something you see on the traditional free market right. And I think it's a lagging reflection of the change that's occurred in the market where there are relatively fewer and fewer medical practices that are independent of a hospital system. And that was not the case when the people who were involved in the debates over Hillary care in the 1990s were coming of age. And thus, in those debates, they were sticklers for this idea of the doctor-patient relationship. And you had figures like the late Senator Tom Coburn, 
Republicans who had been successful doctors thundering against increasing government intervention in healthcare. But I think what's occurred over the last 30 years is healthcare has less and less of that character. There are fewer Tom Coburns and Ron Pauls and the like practicing medicine independently. And so it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist to the same degree. And it's not being defended. Part of this consolidation is a consequence of various regulatory and, and economic changes within healthcare. Part of it also is just a trend in American culture where Americans increasingly want quick solutions. And so instead of calling up their doctor and scheduling an appointment and perhaps having to wait a day or several days for an appointment, many Americans increasingly would prefer to just show up at their local urgent care and be seen by a PA, and there you have essentially no patient-doctor relationship because every time it's someone else. So there are changes in regulation, there are changes in the business models, but there are also changes in the underlying approach to healthcare. And I should say that I blended together two topics, outright hospital consolidation and hospital purchases of medical practices. I think you see both in the D.C. area in the case of a hospital system like Johns Hopkins, which started with a flagship world-leading hospital in Baltimore, which has a lot of patients coming in from overseas, but also has a lot of indigent patients that it serves without any kind of payment separate from governmental support. And as a result of that economic dynamic, Johns Hopkins moved into the relatively, as we've spoken about, affluent Washington market and purchased Suburban Hospital and Sibley Hospital, and I think also now has facilities in Florida. And in that consolidation, you can see the financialization critique that the new right and people on the progressive left are making, which is to say that a hospital exists to serve a community. And when you sort of get tired of serving that community, which admittedly might not be a great business, you begin to wander and stray into all of this M&A activity outside of your market. I think that's the critique we noted in our discussion with New Right leaders. And I suspect, Johnny, that as there's been hospital consolidation and providers, doctors have lost negotiating leverage over compensation, you have more and more disgruntled doctors. And because of the consolidation and the lack of negotiating power, the customer service has deteriorated. And I think the patient is having a less and less satisfying experience with the doctor. Part of that is what I've described. Part of it may be electronic medical records and the lack of personalization in the office experience. But I think it's underrated the effect of so many disgruntled doctors interacting with patients, creating a bit of a feedback loop. And so I think that the antitrust, anti-monopoly argument is being fueled because people sense there is this loss of customer service and loss of quality. And one thing which we have not addressed is that a huge percentage of healthcare is reimbursed by the government, be it some portion of graduate medical education, Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, the VA. So there has been a disjunction between the free market ideal that we've seen among many on the right for the last three decades and the reality. And I think that the new right is responding to that gap between ideal and what it sees as occurring on the ground. And a reflection of that is the debate over the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. 
So let's explore scenarios for healthcare in the coming year during the election and beyond. I'd like us to talk about what are different possibilities for the contours of the healthcare debate and what are policies that might gain momentum that previously have been stalled or are seen as impractical. Candidates that are trying to benefit from the so-called horseshoe theory in politics and find areas of unconventional alliances between left and right may identify healthcare as an area for unconventional alliances, and in particular, skepticism of large healthcare companies and parts of the pharmaceutical sector in particular as foundations of unconventional left-right alliances. That's one scenario. I totally agree, Jeremy. A second scenario we might want to think about a little bit is, especially if the war in Ukraine were to go badly, and even without that necessarily happening, would be a real backlash against what's seen as the European free rider problem, which is the United States subsidizing drug costs for the rest of the world. And as we move into a more isolationist moment, I think Americans are going to be less tolerant of that implicit subsidy that has existed for quite some time. And I can see a very strong political incentive for a candidate to offer a policy solution that would reclaim those subsidies and lower drug prices domestically. And we're already seeing Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio make that argument. And it's, to your point, John, I think likely to filter into presidential politics. I think that a third scenario is, more on the direct policy front here, a significant rethinking of what is classified as healthcare and therefore what is eligible for reimbursement either by federal programs or mandated to be covered by private insurance. There are areas of alternative medicine that right now may be dismissed as not scientifically legitimate that are becoming more popular, and there could be more political pressure for them to be eligible for reimbursement by federal health care programs. There are aspects of food, nutrition, exercise. The fitness industry could also fall under this umbrella as being reconsidered as essentially health care costs. So I think one can envision a rethinking of what really counts as health care and therefore who should be paying for those goods. Thank you for a great conversation, Johnny. Appreciate your contributions. Great being here as always. Jeremy. Glad to do this. All right. And to our audience, thank you for joining us for another episode of The Political Risk Brief. 